Well, good morning. Welcome. It's lovely to have you all here. I'm Liz, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's just good to be here. I wonder if, just as we get going, maybe I want you to take a look around and see if you can spot a kid, or maybe just someone you know a little bit about, or someone you don't know. And I want you to think a little bit about, I wonder who they think they are. And do that in a nice way. You know how some people can say, who do you think you are? Do it, do it nicely, you know, just think, think about who they are. When I was writing this this week, I was actually at this point thinking about little Charlie. Now, many of you know Charlie. Now, actually, sadly, Charlie this week is with his grandparents, but um, so you can't use him as a live example. But Charlie, if you know him, is three. Sorry, I didn't ask Juliet if I could use your son as a sermon illustration, but um, fortunately, he's below the below the age of understanding, and so therefore... But think about Charlie. So Charlie is three, and so what does he know about himself? He knows that he is the center of the universe. That's what most three-year-olds know. They know that they, they, they're there. He's begun to establish that he's got these two adults who's pretty much devoted to him. They think, that they think about when he's going to eat, sleep, go out. They take him places. They do things. They tell him what to do. He calls them mom and dad, and they are clearly his at his disposal. He then discovered that he's got this small person who apparently is called a brother, and he is responsible for doing things nicely to him. So Charlie is beginning to get an image of who he is in the world. He has people who are at his beck and call. He has a small person he has to be a little careful of. What else does Charlie know? Not, to be honest, a great deal. If you put him down like half a mile from his house, maybe he'd be able to find his way home, but it's pretty unlikely. Put him down in the center of DC, not a chance. There is an awful lot that Charlie does not yet know. He has no sense of vocational calling. Well, perhaps he does, but it might be a little misguided at this point. <laughs> but maybe if you looked around and you picked a slightly older child or an adult, they would have a better sense of who they are. They're beginning to fill out. So if you'd chosen Charlotte, she probably is beginning to have a better understanding of her friends and the people around her. Or if you'd chosen Mary Tobin, she might actually begin to have, begin, feel who she is. And so I wonder if you think, thought about yourself and thought, well, who am I? I wonder what kind of things you would immediately put, little words you'd put alongside yourself. And you might do it in different categories. You might think of yourself kind of psychologically, vocationally, relationally, spiritually. Maybe take a moment now and just think, what are the words that begin to pop into your mind as you think about yourself? I began to think about myself, and um, I came up with quite, quite a lot of things. So I thought about myself. I thought I'm a daughter. That was probably my first thing. And then I thought about a sister. And then I became a wife. At some point along the way, I became a mother. I was also a teacher. I was kind of active in my church from always. I was a small group leader. Oh, yeah, I was a Christian, um, those things. Um, traveling, I love traveling. Uh, later on, I became an immigrant, um, a teacher trainer. I thought about some of my characteristics. I'm quite friendly, um, but sometimes I'm a little lonely. Um, I'm a community builder. I've always believed in community building. I became a church planter a few years ago. That was kind of interesting. Oh, and before that, I became a priest. I love to hike. And then, Oh, I've got a couple more. Um, I'm kind of I'm a friend to lots of people, and I've always loved studying, so I put that one on there as well. So 
those were some of the things that I began to think about myself. And I wonder if you were now covered with sticky labels, what they would say. They might say all sorts of different things. But let's take a moment to think about who Jesus was. Because clearly I'm these things, but I'm not, I'm not just these things. But who did you, Simon, could you come here a moment, please? Um, so, so Jesus also was a child. We know that he was born. He was a child, so just like Charlie, he was born, he was a son, he began to grow up. He was an oldest child, and that always has particular responsibilities. He loved to study. Um, we know that. We've got the story of him going to the temple. He grew up and he became a carpenter. He had younger siblings, which brings all that kind of responsibility and um, looking after them, and particularly perhaps if his um, dad did die. I mean, there's a sort of sense that Joseph was older. So at some point, Jesus probably became the primary wage earner. Maybe, he, I mean, he lived near water, so perhaps he could fish as well as be a carpenter. He was friendly. He had lots of friends. Being Jewish was really important to his identity. So he was a Jew. But also, would you mind turning around? There are some things which Jesus wasn't, that at some point he must have deliberately decided about. He decided not to be a husband. He decided not to be a father. He also decided that he didn't care too much about his personal comfort. He decided not to be a homeowner. He decided not to have a stable lifestyle. He decided not to spend his life pursuing security. He didn't go on vacation. And he certainly wasn't all set on having a long life. These were not the things that motivated him. But then we come to a very important day in Jesus' life. He got through his 20s, and then Somewhere around when he turned 30, he heard that his cousin was baptizing in the River Jordan. And he was called to go. He felt like he needed to go and get baptized. And I think a very significant, that was an absolutely significant moment, obviously, in Jesus' life. And what did he hear that day? He heard that he was beloved. And he heard that he was God's son. That was the message which came as God leant out out of heaven and reached down to him and said, you are my beloved son. And the Holy Spirit descended and like he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he then began a life of being a rabbi and a teacher and a healer. And his ministry began. Thank you, Simon. You may sit down. Jesus then at that point steps into the ministry which we now remember him most for, the times when he went out and about. First of all, starting off in um, the desert where he was tempted and where I believe he got greater clarity over what this call on his life was going to be. He began to have a sense of his vocation. And out of that, he began to learn and preach and teach. People came to him and became his disciples. He prayed. He took time to listen and pay attention to who God was calling him to be. 
And so who did Jesus think he was? I think Jesus knew who he was. He was God's beloved son. But how did that shake down for him? Well, I think there was a bit of a clue in our gospel reading today. And we're going to go back and have a look at it. If you want to pull it up, feel free. On, but um, I'm going to read it again slowly. So let's think about the scene. So Jesus is sitting and there are scribes and Pharisees around him. We know because they're about to start re reacting to him. And he began to teach. He began to tell the people a parable. And in many ways, it is a parable. But I think it would have been recognized by those who were listening to him that it was also somewhat of an allegory. Because this is a familiar, familiar setting for them. He starts off, a man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. Oh, the scribes and Pharisees would have said, yay, he's going to tell a story about God. And he's going to tell a story about God and his people. This was what they kind of associated with those images. There were lots of passages in the Old Testament which they would have been familiar with, a psalm or two. Think about passages in Ezekiel or Isaiah. The idea of God having a vineyard was familiar to them. They might have felt quite self-satisfied at this point and thought, goody, goody, he's going to talk about us. And then think again about what the whole having a vineyard implies. It implies that you've bought the vineyard, you've tended the soil, you've planted the vines, you've put up a boundary fence, maybe you've put in a wine press, a watchtower, some ways to protect it. This again, the people of Israel would have thought, yes, that's us. We are the planted ones. We are the vine. God has fenced us round. We're it. And then Jesus went on, when the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Perhaps they shifted a little uneasily at this point because, again, the idea that God would have asked for the first fruits asked for sacrifice, asked for people to give their first offerings to him, was, well, familiar to them, and again would fit with the story of the vineyard. But this reminder, perhaps, of the fact that the tenants had chosen to beat up the prophets, the ones that had been sent, would have been a little uncomfortable. True, but uncomfortable. Jesus went on. Next, he sent another slave, and they also beat and insulted and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, this one they also wounded and threw out. God was repeatedly sending his representatives, and repeatedly they were beaten up, ignored, rejected. Somehow the tenants had forgotten that they were simply tenants. They had begun to think of themselves as the landowners. By now, I suspect there was a slightly uneasy shuffle in the gathered crowd. Because then Jesus goes on, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they discussed it amongst themselves and said, this is the heir. Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. I think this is the clue. Jesus uses that phrase of himself, the beloved son. What he's saying to them so clearly here is this, I have been sent by God. I am God's beloved son. This is Jesus' view of himself. He saw himself in relationship to his father, Abba. And he knew that he had come to challenge Israel, to challenge them about their behavior and to 
tell them that what they had was not truly theirs. He was offering them an opportunity for people to know and to be loved by God. So Jesus is identifying himself as the critical link between Israel and God. But he goes on, so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Oh, goodness, this is not what the scribes and Pharisees want to hear. They don't want to hear that what they had was to be taken from them. They didn't want Israel to be split open and for God to be welcoming the Gentiles into the mix. This is strong language from Jesus. Not, and if he wanted to shock his listeners, he did it. But it's also quite clear. God was making a way now for the Gentiles to be included. And he's also making it quite clear that his call vocationally is going to be to die. Jesus knew himself well enough to know that he was called to be a prophet. He also knew that he was more than that. He knew that he was presenting a culmination of the current story of God and his people. But gosh, the scribes and Pharisees were pretty upset, and they said no. When he looked at them and said, what then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, very clearly putting himself in that position of saying, I am the bridge between then and what is to come. So Jesus is pushing them. They knew this phrase from the Psalms. They knew that it had been talked about David applying to himself as rejected by Israel. But here Jesus is pointing squarely at himself. He knew that he was the chief cornerstone, and he was the one that was now being rejected. Jesus is tying the pieces together in a way that the scribes should have understood. He goes on, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. And when the scribes and chief priests realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. Doesn't it break your heart to think that they sat there, that they heard, that Jesus explained it all to them in pictures and words that they would have understood? He told them their story from God's perspective, and they blew it. They just wanted to kill him, and they feared the people. What an indictment. They've had it all set out to them as clear as day, and yet they still go ahead. They refused, despite all the evidence, to see what they could see about who Jesus was. They couldn't get beyond their own prejudices. If only they had recalled that passage we just heard from Isaiah, where he was pointing out that God was doing new things, that he was creating a way in the desert, that God was inviting his chosen people whom he had formed for himself, that they might declare his praise. So who did Jesus think he was? Jesus knew that he was God's beloved son, and he knew that he had a calling on his life that was going to take him in to his death. Jesus saw that clearly. But I came across this quote this week from N.T. Wright, which I thought could not put it any better than I wanted to myself. He said this, Let me be clear. I do not think Jesus knew he was God in the same sense that one knows one is tired or happy, male or female. He didn't sit back and say to himself, Well, I never. I'm the second person of the Trinity. 
Rather, as part of his human vocation grasped in faith, sustained in prayer, tested in confrontation, agonized over in further prayer and doubt, and implement in, implemented in action, he believed he had to do and be for Israel and the world that which, according to Scripture, only Yahweh himself could do and be. Jesus knew his vocation. Jesus knew he was beloved. Jesus knew the task that lay ahead of him, and he stepped into it, and that was enough to take him all the way to the cross. Paul also got this, and as you, we heard that reading a moment ago from Philippians, Paul was highly respected, a learned teacher who had soaked himself in the law and the prophets, and his labels would have said all sorts of things about being smart and, and going for it and being important, and, and yet he ripped all of those off because when Paul came to know Christ, he said all of these things, they're just rubbish. Actually, the word is dung. He turned from it and said, what I want above all else is to follow Jesus. I'm going to be 100% in to this new vision of what the law and the temple has come to mean. Paul understood that when the tenants killed the son, God moved his relationship to, with his people to a whole new level. And Paul chose not to fear this news. He jumped into it with both his feet, and he said, I have come to Christ. He also knew that this revelation, this choice, this decision he made to know that he himself too was beloved, was also going to take him potentially to death as he affronted, caused affront to the, those who had honored him in the past. And so today, for you, I wonder what labels you have stuck all over yourself. But whether fundamentally you know that you are beloved, and whether that's going to be enough to sustain you this week as you wrestle with tricky colleagues, as you go into meetings, as you wrangle small children, as you wonder what's for dinner, as you go into all the challenges around you this week, will you go in relying not so much on the labels we inclined to put on ourselves, but go into it remembering, I am God's beloved daughter, God's beloved son. As Paul urges, when the race is on, hold tight, tight, stand firm. Remember your identity. And as we come to Easter in the next couple of weeks, remember that we are not simply celebrating someone dying and rising again. We are celebrating the apex of a story of God's relationship with his people that enabled it to be open to us, to come, to come to this cornerstone and acknowledge our belovedness. Amen.